and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom rivet I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we talk about the pivotal moment the world is facing in the US election in the next few days. We speak to John Podesta, former counselor to President Obama, and we have music from OK Go. Thanks for being here. our very best on this podcast to not get blinded by the distraction that is the current president of the United States. But this week, I think we're just going to have to give into it and focus on what's happening because there's nothing in the next week that is going to be more pivotal than the US election that, of course, is taking place next Tuesday. Um, Right now, according to our friends at 538, which is where I like to go most for my predictions, and of course, we should look at this with a fair degree of caution given what happened last time, There is an 88 in 100 chance that Biden will be the president of the United States, president-elect from next week, with all of the different implications that that brings for the future of our climate. Now, John Podesta, we will have on later. There's no one better positioned to talk about whether those numbers are real. But let's just talk about what's at stake. Christiana, you negotiated the Paris Agreement under a very different president. You watched this president come out and effectively announce his commitment to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. What does it mean to you to watch this election now and to see what's at stake and how are you feeling when you face what's going to happen next week? Well, you know, next week is going to be actually momentous for climate because on November 3rd, we will begin to see the results of that election, no telling how long that is going to take. Um, But on November 4th, the United States will present its withdrawal letter (laughs) from the Paris Agreement. Do you think that will Um, happen? Sorry to interrupt you. Do you think that will happen whatever the result? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Won't, won't they be busy trying to sue the other side or kind of, you know, uh, gerrymander? No, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that letter is already primed and programmed into some computer or whatever. And, right. you know, the responsible person only has to click. I've been asking um, myself that for the last four years. Who's the responsible person? Well, I'm hoping that the responsible person is a lawyer at the White House or at Who's going to be very busy. Who is, no, well, I'm, I'm sure that this is top of mind, but I'm hoping that it's someone who since four years ago has actually read the Paris Agreement because mm-hmm. apparently that person now knows that the only date in which they can submit that letter of withdrawal is the 4th of November 2020, <laughs> which is not what they told the president four years ago. So apparently they have since then read the Paris Agreement, you know, soup to nuts, start to finish, which is not terribly difficult because it's not a very long document. Anyway, for for me, the feeling, obviously, of that withdrawal letter um, is half of me is going to be um, just savoring the ignorance that was displayed four years ago about thinking that they could withdraw immediately, uh, and, and that's pretty sad. Um, but also, I will be counting, like everyone else, every single vote of that election, because that is either a definitive for the next four years withdrawal, or that is a temporary withdrawal until January when we have a new president and they can just send another letter and rejoin. Um, And there are huge implications, obviously, geopolitically, pretty ridiculous that in the face of 
Chinese announcement recently in the face of the Japan announcement this week from the prime minister that they're going to be at zero net by 2050, Korea moving forward, the EU moving forward. I mean, honestly, the G7 is basically minus the US, the G7 is basically set to go to decarbonized economy by 2050. And now you have three of the most important economies in Asia, China, Korea and Japan also aligned, just missing India, but they will be figuring out uh, under what conditions they will also be able to do that. So um, it's just, I I, I don't, I can't even find the words to, to describe how odd it is, how odd it is that when the world is moving in one direction, that someone decides to paddle up the river with broken paddles. I mean, how on earth can you expect any progress? Yeah. He's playing mm. a different game. Um, Paul, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I want to notice just what an extraordinary moment this is. It's an absolutely extraordinary moment, I think, in, in all of our lives. And, you know, because of everything that Christiana has just put so eloquently and effectively, because the US is important, you know, the shape of a lot of industry for the next, you know, decades is going to be potentially hugely halted by the next seven days. Yeah. It's just so strange. I feel like I'm floating in space or something and like anything could happen. And my heart's full of sort of best wishes for the outcome uh, that doesn't kind of destroy us. But, you know, it, it feels like a kind of twilight. Now, I looked up twilight twice in the dictionary. In one dictionary, it says uh, the sort of half light before dark. But in another dictionary, it said the half light before dark or dawn, but twilight, <laughs> twilight. Nice. And that, that twilight quality, of course, and many commentators, you know, far better positioned than us have talked about the fact that it's because we've entered into a post-truth period. But there's one particular story that I'd love to bring into this podcast, Christiana. I remember when President Trump announced in the, in the Rose Garden that he was going to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. And you had a particular process for processing that event. Do you want to just share what you did that day as you watched him? Yeah, yeah. First of all, my heart went out to all the roses in the Rose Garden that actually had to listen to this. I mean, it is total rose abuse. Um, but but um, I was traveling and we all knew that this uh, speech was coming. Um, the EU two days before came out to say, no matter what the White House does, we're staying in. China came in one day before saying, no matter what they do, we're staying in, etc. So it was pretty clear that he wasn't going to be followed. Um, but so he had this, this speech and I was sitting, um, in some hotel room, sitting on the edge of my bed with a piece of paper, sorry, it was paper and a pen, um, pretty primitive. And I thought I am going to write down every sentence that he says that is factually correct because you know, that that's important information. Little did I know that that would have been historical (laughs) to get a sentence that was factually correct. Uh, But this was way in the beginning of his presidency, so we didn't know what uh, behavior patterns we would be observing. In any event, so I listened very carefully to the entire speech, and I finished with a blank piece of paper. (laughs) There was not one sentence that was factually correct. And I thought, how is it possible that the largest economy in the world 
its leader is so ill-advised by whoever is advising him. I don't expect him to sit down and, and read the Paris Agreement, but certainly his advisors have the responsibility to read that and to know the circumstances under which it was adopted and not to invent science fiction yeah. um, and present it as reality. I was just Gas. And as policy for nearly 400 million people. Yeah. I mean, you know, there is an explanation, Christiana, and you kind of know what it is. I think we all do to an extent. Uh, and this is something that, you know, you can say whether it's the epitaph for this Trump period or whether it's the, you know, preparing ourselves for the next four years. But there was an article in the New York Times uh, uh, in January about the, 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 the sheer number of fossil fuel industry lobbyists who'd made their way into senior positions in environmental protection. You know this Citizens United ruling in, in 2011 said that business could spend without limit to influence the political process. And, you know, the result of that is this kind of constriction. You know, we're, we're spending money on goods and services and it's stopping us passing laws to do anything about it. But... You know, I have I have been listening to a great podcast, actually, uh, by uh, the BBC uh, called uh, How They Made Us Doubt Everything. And it talks about uh, tobacco lobbyists and then, you know, fossil fuel industry lobbyists, you know, opposing science, opposing government action. And my question at this special moment is, why are those people not in jail? Because if you mess with, you know, the biosphere, I'm in it, by the way, and so are my friends, and you're messing with me. Mm. It's very interesting. And I mean, apart from getting over my astonishment that you actually listen to podcasts these days, Paul, for which I'm actually very proud of you that you started doing it's that. It's sponsored. Um, I'm raising money for my uh, nephew's Christmas present. <laughs> um, I would also point out something I came across this week was an amazing expose that was uh, generated by Greenpeace Canada. I don't know if either of you have seen this. That exposes the strategies that oil and gas companies are still taking in Canada to resist legislation and regulation. And they're no longer saying climate change isn't happening, what they're trying to do, the tool by which they're trying to prevent progress is by persuading people that it's too late, that there's no point in doing anything. There's nothing we can do about it, which is amazing. That we, I mean, apart from anything else, it sort of feeds into the, the optimism idea and the way they're kind of almost endorsing the strategy that we have adopted, that optimism can create an outcome because they're trying to spread pessimism. But I agree with you, Paul, that will probably yeah. ultimately become... That strategy wouldn't yeah. work if, you know, the fire brigade, your house is burning down or something and the fire brigade comes and says, I'm sorry, it's too big, we're not going to waste the water. That's, right. That's not <laughs> the way fires work. Sorry, yeah. feeling, feeling riled. I think we should listen to John. Uh, so. Okay, an expert, a real homegrown U.S. political expert. Yeah, because you know, none, none, none of us are U.S. citizens to yeah. begin with. Uh, so you know, but John um, Podesta, uh, as as Tom introduced him, he was an advisor to President Obama uh, on on climate issues, on strategy. Certainly, he was the main brain behind the um, participation of the United States in the lead up to the Paris Agreement. He was one of the main brains in all of the conversations with China and with India um, before the Paris Agreement and uh, is a deep, deep connoisseur of both U.S. politics and climate change um, political dynamics. Um, and so that puts him, uh, the, the that combination of experience puts him in a very unequal uh, position here to comment on what we're seeing just a few days before the election. 
And, mm. and I mean, to go right back, chief of staff to Bill Clinton, right? I mean, his involvement in presidential yeah. politics goes back decades, right? And head of the Center True. for American Progress. So, yeah, I agree. And how amazing to get John Podesta to speak on this podcast the week before the election. So He did actually win the last election. It's worth remembering that uh, That's true, Hillary by got three million, three million yes, more yes, votes than <laughs> yes, the other guy. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. All right. Good, good call, Christiana. Let's go to John Podesta and we'll be back afterwards for a bit more discussion. John, what a pleasure to have you on Outrage and Optimism. Uh, we are all biting our nails, fingernails, all, <laughs> all, all, all 20 of our fingernails uh, here, uh, just uh, what seems like just seconds before uh, the election in the United States. But um, given, given where you were practically four years ago, we would love to hear your thoughts, John, on is, is it not true that um, at this point, four years ago, we were all pretty assured of the fact, fact in quotation marks, that um, there was a very comfortable lead for the Hillary Clinton campaign. And, um, and now we are again in the situation of v seeing a comfortable lead. Is the lead this time any different than the lead four years ago? Well, I would say the answer to that is yes. Uh, four years ago, we came out of the debates uh, with a lead, about the same size lead in the battleground states that that Biden had. But there are several things that are different. Um, there's less third party vote this time around. So that uh, Biden has is actually over 50 in the key battleground states he mm. needs to win. We were never over 50 uh, at this period of time. We had uh, a couple of developments towards the end that were uh, really unexpected and, and upended uh, the race a little bit, hurt us with some key swing voters, particularly non-college educated white women, uh, the most important of which was the letter that Jim Comey sent to Capitol Hill yeah. 10 days before the election. So just yeah. a, bit, a, couple, a few days ago uh, that said he was reopening the email investigation of Hillary. The whole thing that lasted for two years never really amounted to much of anything, but it cast that big shadow uh, on her. We saw the race narrow during that last week. We thought we were still going to uh, have the edge in the Electoral College. Obviously, she won by 3 million votes, uh, but we, yes. lost, we, we went under by those 70,000 votes in the three states and the, in the Electoral College states. I think Biden's in a more comfortable place there. Uh, I think the vote is more baked. It's been consistent. You know, if you look mm -hmm. at the polling averages, he's well ahead in Michigan. He's up by more than six points in Wisconsin. He's up by just under six points in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's still competitive in North Carolina, Florida, Arizona, but Trump won all those states, so he can't afford to lose any of them. And Biden is currently ahead in all of them. Hmm. What remains unclear uh, is how effective the voter suppression techniques will be Will they be able to contest in court uh, some of the ballots that are being cast, particularly the mail-in yep. ballots, uh, which we have a tradition of mail-in voting. It's always been fine. There's no, you know, Trump's own FBI director said there's no reason to believe that there's 
of fraud in the mail and voting. But Trump has constantly been on that, you know, sort of tune. Uh, and then will there be voter intimidation uh, for the, you know, what is likely to be a, still a very significant same day voting on Election Day uh, mm-hmm. through the through Friday, about 60 million people have already voted. That's about 40 percent, a little over 40 percent of what the vote cast in 2016 was. By the end of the weekend, it's probably over 50. So uh, we're well on our way to probably two thirds of the vote being cast before Election Day. But that last weekend on Election Day, I have no doubt that there'll be efforts by outside groups, by the Republican Party, by outside forces, including, you know, our friends, the Russians are back trying to suppress the vote, intimidate the vote. In any fair election, Biden would win. Trump's Mm -hmm. uh, strong strong disapproval rating now in the United States is 50 percent. You can't you can't get reelected on that unless essentially you're you're what I would describe as cheating. You're kind of selecting the electorate by trying to make sure uh, people can't vote or are discouraged from voting or their votes aren't counted. So we have to be um, aware of that. We have to do everything we can to make sure people are getting out to vote, that we're encouraging all our friends, our families, our contacts. Uh, but people are working very hard. No one's taking anything for granted. Uh, and I think that Vice President Biden and Senator Harris will continue to campaign like this is not one. And yes, until, correct. Until the last know, vote is counted. Until the last vote. <laughs> not even not even until the last vote is cast, but until the last vote is counted. <laughs> correct. Um, John, that um, heavy voting uh, by mail has advantages because uh, all of those who are voting by mail, as you have pointed out, are probably uh, pre- pretty clear about where they're voting. Otherwise, they wouldn't be voting early. Um, however, it does pose a um, logistical challenge, right? Because all of those votes need to be opened up. They need to be counted manually. Um, and that means delays. That also means potential human error. Um, so how do you assess the impact of mail-in voting, both positive and negative? What, where, where do you come out on that? Well, look, I think uh, we should be making it easier for every person to be able to cast the vote. That's their right as a citizen, and that's what we should be after. And particularly given the dangers of COVID spiking in the United States, uh, uh, really across the country at this point, but particularly in some very, very hard hit states, uh, people should have the ability to uh, mail in vote or vote in person early or vote on election day. It should be their preference. Mm -hmm. They should be able to make a plan. Mm -hmm. I think that with respect to county, that's a state decision about when to count the votes. So Mm -hmm. some states are already counting. Counting, correct. I think Florida, is that right? Florida is counting its mail-in vote. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other states won't begin to open and count the votes until election day. And that's Mm -hmm. what causes the delay in getting final tallies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because of problems in uh, computer voting and fears about voter systems being hacked, et cetera, most states have gone to 
something in which there is a paper backup on the ballot. A lot of states now, you uh, have a system where even if you're voting on a touch screen, it prints out a ballot. You can look at that and then you file that. That's essentially similar. Uh, I was actually just voting in uh, in the District of Columbia where I live. You fill out, you know, you fill in the circle, uh, you put it in a security envelope, you put that in another envelope, you sign it, uh, you can drop it off or mail it in. Mm -hmm. You can check to see that your vote has been received. Uh, And you know, so there is security in that. When it comes to counting, I'm not so worried that there'll be human error as much as that there'll be uh, attempts to disqualify a lot of ballots. Mm-hmm. The Republicans mm-hmm. have a major operation underway, uh, you know, tens of thousands of volunteers and lawyers trained to try to challenge because the you know, the signature was tilted a little bit too much and ran over a line or whatever oh to try to, to throw or out. The, the corner of the paper is uh, is uh, folded over. Yeah. The, so uh, in past elections, like uh, California, probably 50 percent is mail in Colorado, 100 percent is mail in Oregon's 100 percent mail in. In those states um, that do a, a combination of both mail in ballots do get. Uh, thrown out a little bit more than uh, obviously going to the polls because people forget to put their signature on the on, on the envelope or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's a process called curing where uh, it is noted that the ballot was cast, but there's some technical problem, like, for example, the one that I mentioned, somebody hasn't signed their ballot. You, there is an opportunity to go back to that voter and say, "Oh wow, you can cure your ballot." Hmm. States are different uh, about the time frame for doing this, uh, but obviously the uh, operations on both sides—Republicans, Democrats—will be looking to chase the ballots that have been tossed to try to get the sure. uh, voters to cure them. There's wow. there's a tremendous amount now going into voter protection, making sure ballots are received, uh, fighting back against the efforts to suppress, certainly pushing back on uh, efforts to intimidate the vote. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, Trump encourages that. You You know, he tells the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. You know, these are the guys with assault weapons who you know, tend to run around yeah. show up at the, uh, you know, on the steps of the Capitol or or uh, show up at polling places. But I think the uh, Democrats are well prepared to try to push back on that, spend a lot of time with attorneys general where uh, Democratic governors, where, where we have Democratic governors. Fortunately, we do have them in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, uh, to, to make sure that the the that people feel safe about voting they can get they can go out and vote and they can get their votes counted there's just uh cases galore being challenged with the democrats wanting to make it easier to vote and the republicans wanting to make it harder to vote there's a reason for Amazing. that because the demographics of who's voting particularly these trump voters are narrowing and narrowing our country is as you well know is quite diverse Young people, uh, people of color, 
they want to do everything they can to tilt that playing field so those people who are new voters into the system, particularly younger voters, you know, don't have an opportunity because they're they're not voting for Trump or they're, you know, in large numbers. They're, right. You know, he's losing that vote by tremendous margins, you know, probably two to one. John, you also mentioned international interference, which was a novelty um, four years ago, but is no longer a novelty, apparently. Is it is it here to stay? And and why are we in this situation again? If it happened four years ago, why are we not better prepared and better shielded um, than, uh, than we apparently are? Because here we are again dealing with bots and all kinds of uh, influential political messages through social media, et cetera, et cetera. How is it possible that we knew that we had that as a weakness uh, and that we're in that situation again? Well, I think that I think there are really two reasons for that. The Russians are clearly back. The Iranians are kind of fooling around, evidently, in this election. Uh, the Chinese are ten, tend to run more traditional intelligence operations against the campaigns as they did in 2008, probably did in 2016, although it was never reported. And uh, there's some indication they're doing that now. But the reality is Trump benefited from it. He encouraged it in 2016. He asked the Russians to interfere in the election. He benefited from it. He got impeached by asking the Ukrainians to interfere in the election uh, against Biden in 2019. Uh, uh, and so his administration has done precious little uh, to take the problem seriously, try to do as much as it could. Uh, the Republicans on Capitol Hill reluctantly, finally, were forced to go along with providing states more resources uh, to uh, basically be able to more secure their their voting systems themselves. Although it it sounds like the Russians have hacked into at least a couple of systems this year. Um, so it's you know it's de definitely a problem. But one of the reasons it's a problem is because uh, the president. Uh, thinks it helps him. And he's, you know, he's always had yeah, this going back to 2015 and 2016. He's got this love affair with Vladimir Putin. He's let him, you know, he's basically said, I believe him and not the intelligence community. He's ignored all the, the U.S. Other... intelligence committee. U.S. intelligence. <laughs> yes, exactly. The Russian intelligence community is very hard at work hacking <laughs> U.S. systems. And uh, and so, you know, why would why wouldn't they come back? How much think about the ROI? It's been uh, no consequences, right? Yeah, yeah. Very few, very little consequences. And they've you know, they've had a compliant president uh, in a context in which he's breaking down tr traditional alliances, throwing uh, doubt on NATO. Uh, and, mm. You know, why 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 wouldn't you come back? Yeah. John, yeah. can, I, can I ask, we're, we're going to go, we want to ask you some more broad questions about what's happening in the US and also some climate related things. But just before we do, Good. you know, we're, we're a week out from the election. You're going to be obviously watching the results as closely as anybody. At what point are you going to feel you know the result? Is it Pennsylvania? Is it Florida? Is it a particular county you're looking at? Well, you know, I think uh, the because of the way they're counting the early votes and the mail-in votes, hmm. I think we'll have the most complete picture of on Florida. Hmm. On okay. election night, if if Biden wins Florida, he's ahead now 
by a couple of points. If he wins Florida, that's game over. Done. There's, right. no, path, there's no path for Trump if Biden wins Florida. Uh, because he's going to do better in those upper Midwest states than he's doing than he's going to do in Florida. So it is just it's beyond Trump's reach, okay. um, notwithstanding their rush to get this uh, uh, Supreme Court nominee filled. Yeah. Right. It's just beyond his reach to win. Um, and we might know that on election night. Uh, it might take a little longer. Uh, obviously, in 2000, it took till December to, find, yes. to get the final results. Exactly. Do we remember that? Yeah. Uh, but you might know that on election night because that will be the most complete uh, vote uh, counted. Uh, I think even if you, even if it's still uh, just uh, quite narrowly, you know, within a, you know five ten thousand votes in Florida, the way it was. Uh, in 2000 in the Bush v. Gore race, I think that's a very, very bad sign for Trump. Again, in 2016, he won Florida by just over a percentage point, but those upper Midwest states were closer than that. So if it's kind of Bush v. Gore numbers, that means that Wisconsin ought to come through, Pennsylvania ought to come through, Michigan ought to come through. So pay close attention to that. Okay, okay so that's a, that's a shout out to uh, our listeners in Florida. Yeah, it's very important. John, just explain, you know. Oh God. As as Tim Resser always would do with his whiteboard, Florida, Florida, Florida. I don't think it's decisive. Pennsylvania is probably the decisive state. Okay, but we may not know that on election. But we might not, but, tr- but yeah. Pennsylvania is not going to have – yeah. They'll have a lot of the vote out on election night, so it'll be a little bit less clear. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's, there's probably been, what is it, like 12 millimeters of sea level rise since the last election, so probably Florida's thinking more sensitively about this. And we'll, we'll come on to ask about climate change, but yeah. um, jo- John, can I just ask you like a really big question? You know, I, I live in little old England on the other side of the ocean, small old country, and um, <laughs> long story short, what is going on in the USA? I mean, you know, the the great... Republic, the United States of America, were really quite a normal country and, and much admired around the world. And what went wrong? I mean, you've, you've talked about a, a corrupt president. Um, you know, was the problem Citizens United? What went wrong? Well, look, I think it's been going on for a generation of this, uh, this push to a nationalist, authoritarian right politics of hate and division. You certainly see it in Europe. The difference is we have a two-party system. So it expresses itself a little bit differently in multi-party systems where you have that hard authoritarian nationalist right be uh, sometimes in government, sometimes not in government present. Here, it captured the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. It kind of Mm -hmm. started with Gingrich. Um, Maybe I would say it was kind of interrupted by Bush. You know, we sometimes forget this, but when Bush campaigned in 2000 as a camp, as a compassionate conservative, he was running really as uh, rejecting that hard right negative push of Gingrich. Interesting. Um, and uh, obviously McCain didn't embrace it. Romney didn't really embrace it. And Trump came along and he found uh, a way to both find that core of voters who were uh, really angry about the social changes in this country. He tapped into the economic anxiety uh, and the effects of globalization, which you felt in Brexit, you know, and you see the difference in voting patterns. 
he tapped into that and gathered up some uh, other voters there. Uh, some of the switch from Obama, Trump back to Democrats in 2018, and I think to Biden in 2020, uh, are those voters who felt really squeezed by uh, the the uh, trade, by forces of globalization, by feeling kind of left out and left behind, and um, that's been that's been part of the of what you might think of as the swing vote, but that mm-hmm. core conservative vote really consolidated around a message of conspiratorial right-wing nationalism that was aided and abetted by social media. Yeah. When I was asked about what's different, you know, that's still not different enough True. <laughs> for all the mm-hmm. pressure of the puke that's running through uh, social media, the conspiracies. Now the QAnon, which has flipped back over uh, to Germany in particular, but to Europe in general, all that stuff was for years the profit engine of mm-hmm. companies like Facebook uh, yeah. and to a lesser extent, you know, Twitter, YouTube, now even TikTok's trying, trying to throw them off, but the fire's been set. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's 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 a little bit too little and it's a little too late. And uh, I think that that has had a profound effect on the way kind of people see politics uh, in the U S and, 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 you know, in general around the world. It's mm. it's astonishing how quickly that's grabbed the zeitgeist and people have sort of seen things differently through that. I, I want to pivot now. I mean, obviously there's so many people now that are really concerned about the climate issue even more than there were four years ago. And there's a lot of hand-wringing that goes on as people look at Biden and sort of say, well, where really on the priority list does climate fall for him? I mean, you will know more than anyone else in 2008, Obama came in, made the decision to go to healthcare. By the time we pivoted to climate, it was a different story, right? That's well established. So what can we learn from the fact that Biden is closing on climate in this campaign? And does that portend the fact that he's going to make this the big legislative run at the beginning of his term? Yeah, I you know, I think there's a, a bunch of explanations for that. You know, he didn't come into the primaries as the guy who was emphasizing climate. Right. Uh, the way some of the other candidates right. did. But um Democratic primary voters were in a demand mode. <laughs> they were saying, this is serious. This is a top tier issue. Hmm. This rivals health care for things that that you need to you need to have a plan for. You need to prioritize. And we expect a lot. What's ended up happening was climate was always climate solutions. Climate is a problem it was always a kind of 60 percent issue in the U.S., hmm. but it was not it was way down the salience list. Yeah. That's shifted. Hmm. Part of that's uh, the activism of young people, you know, particularly Sunrise and, and, uh, and the groups that have been out campaigning on this. Some of it is just the focus, I, as I said, of Democratic primary voters. A lot of it is that we are experiencing the devastation of climate while we're sitting here talking on this uh, podcast. You know, the fires uh, on the West Coast, the hurricanes in the Gulf. There was a week in September where four of the most polluted cities in the world were on the West Coast of the United States. Portland was the most polluted city in the world. 
I don't know if you've ever been to Portland, but it's uh, kind not of usually polluted. That's right. Green, <laughs> Big trees. And this summer, John, didn't Washington, D.C. just have the most record-breaking heat wave for yes. days? Yes. Records, uh, uh, heat over 90. You, you'll help me convert that to Celsius for your <laughs> very <laughs> hot, very hot. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was hot. It was hot here, and and it's combined with I think now people's real sense of the nature crisis, the loss mm, of yeah, yeah. of species, mm-hmm. the tremendous pressure on the oceans, etc. People are seeing it. They're feeling it. They uh, they know things have changed. You know, nobody knew what a derecho was. Uh, a year or two ago. Now it's kind of wiping out the state of Iowa. Yeah. Uh, these ex- these extreme weather events combined with the press finally sort of taking it seriously. Hmm. Uh, and the debates are a good example of this. When yeah. Chris Wallace announced his debate topics, he didn't have climate change in it. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I was uh, helped form this organization called Climate Power 2020, whose sole purpose... Right was to inject and win the politics of climate in 2020 election. Us, Move On, uh, Sunrise, and others mounted a major campaign to push to say, what is this? Is this Rupert Murdoch telling Chris Wallace what the, what the topics <laughs> ought to be? And to his credit, I mean, I didn't, I didn't think the questions were that great, but it was that. They were there. They were there. And by the time we got to Kristen Welker, you know, came up in the vice presidential debate. By the time we got to Kristen Welker, uh, people were actually pushing in and saying, these are the questions, you know, don't just ask, is it your, do you believe in climate science? Yeah. That's, that's like not debatable. No, she definitely had a different, she had a different level of questions by that, well, by that time. Check totally. in on environmental justice. What's this doing to poor yeah. people? What's your plan to deal with it? Mm. Yeah. Biden committed the truth. We need to transition from fossil fuels. That's got to take place over some period of time. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, he's got plans to do it. And, you know, Trump, in his own way, lies about whatever Biden said. Uh, and I think he thinks this is going to win Pennsylvania for him, et cetera. Biden is you know, his team is probably, in my view, over explained what he said. He should just tell the truth. You know, this mm. is a crisis. We need to deal with it. Uh, we can do this over a period of time. And guess what? It's going to create millions of jobs, tens of thousands of new businesses, uh, put people to work at all skill levels doing the work that needs to be done. Yeah, John, you know, that was going to be my question to you because, yes, you say that there is so much more awareness because of the negative impacts of climate change and what was happening with nature, which are both the same thing. Yes, I agree. And also, I wanted to know from you whether, do, do you think that there's more awareness of the benefits and the opportunities and the economic stability and the better health and the better cities and the better transport, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, better food production that comes with action on climate. Are we actually beginning to turn the curve from seeing climate only as a huge burden that we have to bear versus an opportunity that we can move into? Yeah, uh, that's a great question, Christiana. And I think the answer to that is yes, and it's kind of borne out in what the program Biden put on the table is. Mm. 
You know, he calls for $2 trillion worth of investment, creations of millions of jobs. Uh, you know, uh, Morgan Stanley, maybe it was Moody's, I can't remember. I think it was Morgan Stanley put out an analysis that said Biden's plan will create m- millions more jobs than Trump's plans of just more tax cuts for wealthy people. And I think people can get that. It's not abstract. They know and they see because it's happening around the country that people are going to work uh, in these clean energy uh, industries. They're transitioning uh, the energy system uh, to uh, more renewables. Uh, The uh, price of electric vehicles has come down. It's going to cross over. It'll be not not the all-in life cost, but the the actual uh, showroom sticker cost is going to cross over pretty soon. So I think people get that that's the future. They know that's the future. Thank God. It's about time. It's coming. <laughs> there are now state-based networks uh, that it began in New York called Climate Jobs. There's a Climate Jobs National Resource Centers made up of, of uh, state-based local unions who are coming together to push for legislation that would transition the energy system, invest in uh, efficiency, do it with union labor uh, for high paying jobs. And so these are frontline workers, frontline unions are saying, let's get on with the program. You know, we we can build a lot of offshore wind. We could transition uh, in Illinois. There's a big push to put uh, uh, solar on all the uh, public school buildings in the state. There's opportunity, uh, and even the organized sector see that that's their future. And that's happening all across the Midwest. It's happening in the Northeast. Uh, it's happening in Texas. It's happening in California. People are saying, I want to get on with this. I want to be part of a future that's going yeah. to produce a cleaner environment, uh, you know, a, a healthier society. Avoid the risk for sure, yeah. uh, but put people to work doing that work. But it's amazing. Mm. I mean, what's so interesting about the fact that we've reached this moment where people are seeing it as an opportunity, the risk is becoming clear, you know, it's becoming this presidential priority in a campaign the way it's never been before. And yet we have the unbelievable spectacle of a Supreme Court justice being appointed within a week of an election. Now, traditionally, right, you would, a president, if they couldn't get legislation through, would go the regulatory route. But I wonder now, given the 6-3 conservative majority, whether that regulatory route looks at least as difficult as legislation. So I wonder whether, is there, in your analysis, is there any path to the US doing something really meaningful on climate without filibuster reform and adding justices to the court? Is that the only way to get this to happen? No. It's not the only way. Okay. But we Democrats have to control the Senate. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's the trick. That's the trick. But we got to win the Senate. Because if Mitch McConnell's the Senate majority, uh, he's going to block what Forget Biden it. wants yeah. to do. And uh, But if we do win the Senate, then there's a path forward. Uh, we have this arcane procedure. It's called budget reconciliation. Yeah. Uh, it, it is a, it's what Clinton did in 1993 uh, to get the economy moving in the United States and produce 23 million jobs. Uh, his economic program passed by a single vote in the House 
Hmm. And by Gore breaking the tie in the Senate. So it passed by one vote in each body, simple majority, pr- produced tremendous dividends for American workers as well as the American economy overall. And I think that's, that is a path forward for Biden. And um, Tom, you're pointing out something very important about the regulatory pathway now. I think there is a role uh, for standards and regulation. Um, and there's still uh, the ability to do that, even with this more conservative core. Hmm. But you won't be as uh, ambitious, if you will. You can still regulate power plants. You know, you can still regulate methane, particularly in oil and gas development. You could convert public lands, which are a major source of coal production in some lesser source of gas and and oil, although public waters are a major source of oil production. You can begin to shift those uh, places to renewables hmm. and you know, with offshore wind and onshore solar. and, and but, but you never would have got something like the endangerment finding, right, that happened when you were in the White House, um, where, the, where it was decided that it, the greenhouse gases were regulatory. Yeah, under, I think yeah. if that's a matter of first impression, you probably have a different outcome, but now I think it might be a hard precedent to roll back. Okay. Uh, but the the you know I want to emphasize this. It's the question should be asked to the Republicans: Why did you pack the Supreme Court? Hmm. <laughs> Not to Biden. Will you pack the Supreme right, Court? Right. Right. I like it. That's what they <laughs> exactly, did. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so you know it's 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 uh, it's challenging, but. I think that the federal government, instead of resisting California's automobile program, might try to align with California's mm. automobile program. Uh, Gavin Newsom, by the way, just announced that no new car sales in California that aren't uh, zero emission by awesome. 2035. That was that was awesome. Yeah. He also just signed an executive order that will protect 30 percent of California land, uh, state waters and land. Uh, by 2030, consistent with the global push at the uh, Convention on Biodiversity. Biden has pledged that at the national level. Uh, there, He'll have a lot of capacity, authority to try to work with states, private landholders, the agricultural community to do uh, better protection of land and oceans. But um, there's way, way big ways to go <laughs> in terms of uh, land protection, but we need that to kind of regenerate the biodiversity, the species. You know that's really important in the in the ocean environment for particularly for these you know top of the food chain uh, mm-hmm. pelagic. Is that what they're called? I can't remember. <laughs> that's, that's impressive. That's impressive. John, we would we would love to keep um, poking here at your brain uh, and knowledge, but sadly, we have to bring the episode to close. And I can't do so without asking you perhaps the most challenging question of all, if you're up for it. Sure. Here we go. As you look back at the last four years, Trump administration, can you find anything good, productive, constructive, for the interest of the United States, either domestically or internationally? I would say uh, it remains to be seen 
how this ultimately plays out. But nurturing the deal between the UAE and Israel, which mm. I think the UAE nurtured more than the U.S. nurtured, but, <laughs> uh, you know, followed by Bahrain, followed by Sudan. I don't know. That really leaves the Palestinians out in the cold. So how that's what the what the last chapter of that story is going to be, I don't know. But that that is probably the might be the only spot where I think, well, maybe they did the right thing on that. <laughs> everything else is everything else foreign domestic is a disaster. <laughs> it's it's like the, the stopped watch is right twice a day or something, you know. Wow. Okay, well, John, thanks, uh, thanks very much, and and we always close out by asking our guests whether, uh, with the perspective of uh, of both the, the the wisdom of the past and the view into the future, are you feeling more outraged about what we're seeing or more optimistic about what we might see? I I started in presidential politics fifty two years ago. So I try to keep a more even keel. <laughs> I sort of, I'm outraged when I'm talking to my wife and I'm optimistic when I'm talking to my grandchildren. <laughs> poor, poor wife, poor Mary. <laughs> She's a good soul. She, she takes it all in. <laughs> she is a good soul. John, thank you so much. This has been so insightful. So, we so appreciate you taking great. the time. Just a week to go. We're going to be watching as I know you will. We are all, as three non-US citizens sitting on the line, we're, the rest of the world is behind you. So Indeed. Uh, hoping for a good result <laughs> I, in a week's I, time. I, I know if the citizens of the world could vote how the election Sorry. would come out. <laughs> it wouldn't be close. <laughs> yes. Indeed, indeed. For sure. <laughs> Maybe maybe that's the novelty, right? Not in not illegal oh, yeah. interference, oh, but yeah. open participation of the whole citizenship of the world. <laughs> we might we we might lose a few precincts in Hungary and Moscow, but I think the world would probably I think it would get lost in the mix. That's right. <laughs> John, thank you so much. Mm. All right, talk to you. Thank again. you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, how amazing to get a chance to sit with John Podesta just a few days before the US election. Uh, that was amazing and weirdly reassuring, I thought, that he felt so calm as he was facing this, although, of course, he's aware more than anyone the implications and the stakes. What do you guys leave that conversation with? Uh, you know, I listened to a podcast that Hillary Clinton did herself two days ago, um, also where she was asked uh, what she sees differently. And she, not, not surprisingly, she agrees with John's arguments of why this is completely different. She also points out in that podcast that this whole, in, uh, the, the influence of social media and the international influence in U.S. politics was completely new four years ago. Everybody was yeah. caught sort of by surprise. Yeah. And and she says that it no longer catches anyone by surprise that um, in, in, if you want to be on the positive side, um, that people are beginning to be a little bit more discriminatory with respect to, um, I, I, I don't know, the inventions that are made on social media about candidates um, and that social media is beginning to have less influence. Do you think that's true? Anecdotally, yes, I think that's true. 
I don't have any evidence to suggest that people are not believing social media stories, but my experience of my social group and knowing younger people is that there's much more scepticism and discriminatory perspective that is brought to discriminatory in the sense of being discriminating in terms of what is true towards what they read online. Mm, I'm still a little bit suspicious because a lot of this social media stuff is about us against machines and the machines are getting bigger and stronger and better all the time. So mm. I'm still nervous. I mean, one thing I loved about, uh, I mean, on, on the social media point to a degree, um, I thought it was fascinating the way he talked about this core conservative vote getting concentrated around conspiratorial right-wing nationalism. You know, he said that, that the hard right was not really embraced by Bush or McCain or Romney, but Trump tapped into it, this economic anxiety about globalization and said that we'd had it with Brexit and, and then, you know, made the point that, uh, uh, you know, this, this, this sort of pretty dangerous thing has formed now. And he, he definitely saw it aided and abetted by social media and the pressure of the puke in his rather memorable phrase. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a pleasing image. It's I'm just telling you what the guy said, you know. It's like, I heard him. I heard him. Because, because the thing is that puke is being pressurized and, and cooked by machines. So you've yeah. got to be, you know, you've got to keep an eye on that. And, and, and to be honest, if it's regimes, if it's oppressive regimes doing that, you know, we need to kind of weaponize their dissidents with our, with our technology because this is not fair. You know, we can't have asymmetric war against democracy. Well, no, indeed. And I mean, this is not a new, this is nothing, not going away anymore, right? This is going to be, but hopefully we can have a president after this election who actually will do something about it between now and the next one, rather than just sort of encourage it and sit back and give the implication that there's no um, no consequences for, for messing around with democracy in other countries. Um, the other thing which I thought was interesting was I sort of challenged him and slightly provoked him by saying, um, is it true that the only path to U.S. climate action is now through filibuster reform and new supreme justices on the new justice on the Supreme Court? And actually, I felt he kind of had kind of a sort of no, it's it's okay. We can do this through budget reconciliation processes. I sort of felt quite like, I mean, he knows far more about me than me, obviously, about the legislative process and how you get bills through Congress. And it seemed to me that although he didn't quite spell it out that the tone of how he talked about that suggested he kind of had a plan as to how this would happen. And I found that weirdly reassuring. You know, he had just incredible energy. I love that. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of like all those terrible things. He's just like, he keeps plowing on. Yeah. Um, I was also um, <laughs> taken by his reducing this whole hysteria that everybody's feeling to Florida. Just yeah. stay focused on Florida, right? Wherever Florida goes, that's where that's where the election goes. Um, I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. And everyone listening to uh, to his conversation with us will be eagle eyes on Florida um, because of the uh, of, of the number of uh, votes that they represent. But um, I, I did a little background search, and it so happens that there are eight states that um, that be are allowed to begin to count votes um, ahead of time, not just Florida. And some of them can count two weeks before, some of them cannot count uh, until uh, more than two weeks before, some of them have to wait until weeks before, some of them actually have to wait until election day themselves. But you know, it's a pretty arduous process, but Paul, you talked about machines. But this, the fact is that all of these little envelopes, right, and, and we tend to forget that envelopes exist, right, because we don't mail yeah. anything anymore. But, I mean, picture this, right? Election workers have to open envelopes 
verify signatures against the registered signature. I mean, that is just incredibly time-consuming. two or three minutes per vote, I reckon. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Then they have to remove something that is called secrecy sleeves. Then they have to start counting. I mean, this is just incredibly... Primitive. I'm. I'm not sure what other word to to use. And there are eight states that will be in that uh, in in the position of doing that if they so choose. And in fact, all of the eight. No, except except. Sorry, one, two, three, four, five, six. There are six of them that cannot start that process until election day. The others can actually start ahead. Um, but but what a complicated system for those Where's of us who are used to. Pennsylvania starts on election day. Oh, wow. Okay. By the way, I mean, I'm, I'm laughing because there is just the funniest thing, if anyone who wants to look out for on, on Google or YouTube or whatever, is from the Onion News Network, and it, and it speaks to the alternative, Christiana, and it's a, it's a fictional election where a voting machine wins and becomes president. So you've got to look out for that because, you know, uh, if, if you let the machines run things, uh, you know, you, you might get a bit of a surprise. Now, Christiana, can we ask you a question from a listener? Um, someone has asked, what are the financial implications for the United States of withdrawing from the Paris Agreement? Yeah, we saw that um, question come in. So um, so that depends on uh, what we call, what, how we interpret financial implications. The, the fact is that the only, let's say, uh, binding financial uh, responsibility of the United States to, it's not even to the Paris Agreement, it is to the convention itself. And depending on whether you're a party to both the protocol or the convent or, or the Paris Agreement, it varies a little bit, but not much. But every country contributes to the operation of the Secretariat of the Climate Convention according to rules that are established by the UN and that have to do with the size of the economy. So larger economies pay more, smaller economies pay less. And that has been a standing formula for years. Um, And so the United States pays a, a sizable portion. Now, if I remember correctly, and I'm really digging down into the bottom of my memory here, I think the um, the United States tab for that is about $15 million for two years because they pay for two years at the same time. And I think I remember, but Tom will, will remind me if this is true, that um, the United States actually flatly refused to pay that already several years ago, at which point Mike Bloomberg came and said, well, if the U.S. as a government is not going to pay, I'm going to chip in because this process has to continue. Right. Um, and so, so that is actually the only financial obligation of the United States, which has now been paid by a U.S. citizen. Um, Out of small change, I should that, mention. <laughs> yes. Found it behind the sofa. Exactly. <laughs> um, and as, so, but that's the only true obligation. Then there are other, I would call, goodwill gestures that countries uh, participate in, such as, for example, the contribution to the Green Climate Fund or the contribution to these $100 million total that are supposed to be put there so that developing countries can meet their outsized vulnerability to climate change, none of which, or not all of which, is expected from the public sector. Most of it is actually coming from the private sector as investments, uh, for-profit investments. Um, so it's it's not that big a deal, right? And that was 
one of the lies that Trump said in the Rose Garden speech, as I say, poor roses, because mm. I, he said, you know, that the United States was forced to do this against their will. No country was forced. And he said that the United States had to pay these, you know, huge uh, sums into into the process, all of which is just completely erroneous, misinformed science fiction. Deceitful. Deceitful. No, well, that's great. Thank you for taking the time to answer that. And and we love questions like this. So, so um, other listeners, if you want to send us in questions, we'll do our best to answer them or maybe we'll do a Q&A at some point in the future. Um, but that was great. So now this is the end of our last conversation between <gasps> the, before this consequential oh, moment. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, so at least we hope so, right? Next time, yeah, next time we see you, we well, at least the US will have voted. We don't know if we'll know the response. But we're going to keep talking about the US next week, of course, and we will bring you analysis Whatever happens, we'll be back next week talking about where we are and what that means and what that means for climate. So we should say good luck, everyone. We'll see you on the other side. And we're leaving you with a great piece of music to carry us through. So OK Go, you've probably heard of them. They're a very well-known band. Their, Their career has spanned many decades. They first formed in 1998 in Chicago and then moved to Los Angeles. Um, Their career has included award-winning videos, the establishment of a DIY transmedia mini empire, collaborations with pioneering dance companies, tech giants, animators. OK Go is a band at the intersection of music, visual art, technology, and science. Their music has been encoded on the strands of DNA and played at President Obama's 50th birthday party. And I particularly love this piece of music and it has a real piece of meaning for me. So a few months ago, I recorded a TED talk in the woods near my home in England. And the night that that came out, which was at TED 2020, the prequel, we were right in the middle of the first lockdown. And that evening, which was, of course, was all virtual, uh, OK Go played a piece of music that they had been working on during the lockdown. And it's called All Together Now. And they wrote it because they were inspired by a piece. uh, They were inspired by an op-ed that was authored by Rebecca Solnit, who's been on this podcast. Mm. And she talked about the fact that at that moment, it was like we were all in a chrysalis. A chrysalis, of course, is this moment in the life of a being, a caterpillar on its way to being a butterfly. And I'm sure the listeners know this, but the caterpillar becomes completely liquid. It loses all of its form, but it's full of complete potential to then reform in the form of a butterfly. That's how it makes such a transformation. And they wrote this song, which they all performed in their various homes. And I'd encourage you to watch it on YouTube. Um, And at the end of it, they then all walked outside and Los Angeles was applauding for essential workers. Now, I've always loved this. I first heard it that night. And I think it's particularly relevant now because this moment of latent potential that we're about to realize what's going to happen in the next week really made me want to play that this week. And I'd just like to recount... Listen to the lyrics really carefully. There's one of them that really stuck out for me, where the singer says, nothing changes until one day it does, and then there's no going back. Our best selves and our worst selves live in the moment there, sparring over who draws the new map. And though the lights may look unchanged, everything depends on who wins that game. (laughs) This is OK Go, all together now. We'll see you next week. It's all still the same. 
Everything's untouched but forever changed Oh, we're all still the same Everything's untouched but forever changed All together now, all together now, all together alone in the chrysalis. All together now, all together now, all together alone in the chrysalis. All together now, all together now, all together alone in the chrysalis. All together now, all together now, all together alone in the chrysalis. All together now, all together now, all together alone in the chrysalis.
so there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. My name's Clay. I'm the producer of the podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, second time, or what is it, 76th time, welcome. It's so good to have you here at the end of the show. I take this part of the podcast to not only thank everyone who makes this podcast possible, but to provide you with some resources to take action on climate, connect with others, and learn more. So thank you for joining us. Be sure to hit subscribe and meet us back here next week. Uh, The song you just heard is called All Together Now by OK Go. Um, They filmed a video, obviously OK Go style, which if you don't know what that is, go to YouTube immediately. Um, You can watch this video from the song online and there's a really special moment at the end and you don't want to miss it. They're doing a really cool thing. All proceeds from the song are going to Partners in Health. It's such a cool social justice and global health organization. They're working to make healthcare a human right for all people, starting with those who need it most. Everything I just mentioned is all in the show notes. Go click around, watch the video, make a donation, and enjoy. Okay, special thanks this week to Jenna Shogren for helping coordinate our interview with John Podesta. And thank you to Christian Rodriguez for getting the mic to John. Uh, Christian, I miss your cat. Pedro? I think his name is Pedro. Okay, Outrage and Optimism is a global optimism production. Our hosts are Christiana Figueres, Tom Rivet-Karnak, and Paul Dickinson. Global Optimism is a small team, but we get it done. We are Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sharon Johnson, and John Ward. So I don't know if you've heard, but there's an election coming up and millions of people are about to make a very important climate decision with their vote. Our social media team has just posted Carbon Brief's Candidate Climate Action Commitment Tracker, it's a mouthful, that shows the candidates' climate commitments side by side. It's so informative and really helpful for helping friends and family see what the two US candidates have to say and again, what they've committed to if they're elected. You can check out the tracker and so much more by looking up at Global Optimism on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Oh, and uh, LinkedIn. Can't forget about LinkedIn. So if you love this podcast, it means the world to us if you could rate us and write us a review. We read every single review that comes through. We often WhatsApp message together about them. And when you write a nice review, it's making smiles happen around the world. Thank you. Okay, we can do this. Election's coming. We're going to be back here next Friday. And, you know, who knows what we'll know at that point. But we're going to be right here. So there's only two things left to say. Number one, if you're a U.S. citizen, vote if you haven't already. And two, a word of advice for the upcoming days from Samuel L. Jackson in the classic cinematic blockbuster film, Jurassic Park. Hold on to your butts. See you next week. Bye.